Keep Up. I'm your host, Cynthia Dill. With me today is Senator Angus King. Welcome, Senator King. Cynthia, it's good to be with you. Last time I saw you was in the basement of the Senate office building in Washington uh, three or four years ago now. And that was really fun. Um, I'm so happy that you're here, and I want to just jump right into some questions that I think constituents might be interested to hearing your remarks on. Um, the first is, um, of course, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation was the big news this week. And I guess what I'm wondering is, um, will Senator Collins' vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh have an impact on your endorsement of her in the 2018 election? Excuse me, the 2020 election. Oh, I yeah. hadn't even thought about that. Uh, she and I have a very close working relationship. Uh, it's very important for Maine that we have a close working relationship. It, we, we work together on obtaining grants, on working on contracts, anything uh, benefiting Maine. Uh, so, you know, I, I haven't really thought that far ahead, to tell you the truth. Uh, we're talking two years from now, and of course I'm, I'm running this year. So uh, she, she made a tough decision, and she worked hard at it. Uh, as she always does, she did a lot of homework. She and I reached uh, the opposite conclusion, and uh, uh, that's uh, you know that's just in the nature of this business. You you uh, make your best call that you can, and uh, as I say, we came to the opposite uh, the opposite call on this one. It does seem that she did the homework and supported her decision, and it was a difficult decision. Do you think it's a decision that's going to um, have a profound impact on her legacy necessarily? Well, I, I don't know. It's, it's, how do you judge something like that? I mean, uh, I think a lot will depend uh, for everybody who casts that vote what he does as a judge. Exactly. Uh, we'll know within two or three years probably uh, what direction he goes in, what direction he takes the court. Um, I was concerned, as you know, about his basic judicial philosophy, and I think he'll uh, take the court in a, in a direction that will be inimicable to individual rights. Uh, and I had a number of, I, I came out against his nomination after a lot of work, but before Dr. Ford's allegation, uh, based upon his judicial philosophy, the, I thought, really serious failure to produce the documents that back up his nomination. We only got 10% of the documents that he, that he produced as a member of the White House staff in the Bush administration. I don't see how you can hire somebody for a lifetime job when you only see 10% of their work product. And by the way, the guy who decided which 10% was an old buddy of his had worked for him. I, I just don't think that, I just thought that was improper. That reminds me, the FBI investigation that was done um, after the testimony of Dr. Ford and, and Judge Kavanaugh, but before the final vote, did you have access to, did you get to go to that secret room that they were reporting about in the Senate where they had one copy of, of a report? I did. Uh, I spent a couple of hours down there reading all the, all the documents. Uh, I thought it, it raised as many questions as it answered. I didn't think it was definitive by any means. But again, my position on the nomination really wasn't based upon those allegations. I think Dr. Ford was, was credible and compelling, but I thought, for example, his testimony that Thursday afternoon was disqualifying. He was partisan, uh, and to look at the Democratic side, and I checked the tape, looking at the Democratic side of the dais and say, what goes around comes around is a threat. You shouldn't have somebody on the Supreme Court who is so uh, nakedly partisan. And uh, I felt 
that just that, just that one phrase, what goes around comes around, to me was disqualifying because it indicated how, how can you possibly expect a fair-minded decision from somebody who said that, even though I understand he was under pressure, he was angry, it was a, it was a terrible uh, attack on himself and his family, but uh, the other thing I went back and looked at, he'd written those words. Yes. It wasn't like in the moment he just flew off the handle. Uh, this was a, a, a conscious and deliberate effort uh, to turn this hearing into a partisan affair, which I, I, I think was uh, uh, very unfortunate because the court, the Supreme Court, doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have an army. All it has is its credibility and public confidence. And I think, uh, among other things, his testimony that afternoon, to me, clearly would undermine the public confidence in the in the even-handedness of the decisions of the court. Now that you're uh, down in Washington and you see how it works up, up close and personal, do you have more respect for Mitch McConnell for being able to just plow that nomination through and deliver on a substantial promise that President Trump and Republicans have made in advance of the election? I mean, was that sort of awe-inspiring in some weird way or well, he, less? He, he did a, something very similar on the tax bill. He's a he's a Senate tactician. Uh, he pushes hard. He pushes his majority to the, to the you know to the, the limit of getting things done that he wants to do. Uh, I'm not sure that's a. Uh, 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 I, I disagree with where he's taken the Senate, uh, but certainly he's uh, been able to marshal his votes uh, and get through. They couldn't do it on on health care, thank goodness. Uh, but they did it on the tax bill, and they did it on this one. Um, and you know, the tax bill, the results are going to be sort of, you know, we'll see. Blah, blah, blah. But with Brett Kavanaugh, we're going to know who was right on this question within a couple of years. Now, what about the Democrats? Did they do a good job managing the Kavanaugh confirmation process, or did it get a little out of control in your mind? I, I think in some ways they uh, they lost sight of the goal, which was to uh, get votes. And by turning it into a partisan uh, Democrats versus Republicans, I don't think that worked out very well because the Republicans had the votes. Uh, and uh, that's one of my things I noticed down there, that so often uh, everything's turned into us versus them and uh, it doesn't contribute to getting, getting the job done. So I think to some extent uh, the Democrats played into Mitch McConnell's hands by making it almost impossible for Republicans to vote with them by turning it into a Democrat versus Republican struggle instead of, is this guy the right guy for the Supreme Court? I wondered whether uh, or not if the other allegations hadn't piggybacked on top of Dr. Blasey Ford's, the allegations, for instance, that were brought to light by that lawyer, Michael Avenatti, if that also played a, a hand in sort of making it inevitable that the Republicans were going to have to vote to confirm. I, I, I think so, because unfortunately the whole, that whole issue sort of swallowed all the other considerations about his judicial philosophy, whether or not adequate documents had been produced, uh, what his position was on presidential power, whether he should recuse himself, uh, and certainly I think Michael Avenatti jumping in at the last minute, it, it sort of turned it all into a referendum on you know, who do you believe, rather than is this the right guy for the for a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court? 
And why aren't we investigating the leak of the letter? Senator Feinstein says her office didn't leak it. Uh, every well, Many Republicans expressed outrage about the leak. It seems to be a, a real an issue that people could care about. I, like, think, I think there will be some investigation. I, I suspect the Judiciary Committee will, will follow up. Uh, all the indications are it wasn't Senator Feinstein or someone in her office. Uh, I, I just I have I have no idea, um, but it, it it also is unfortunate that we got sort of tried to sidetracked who leaked it, how long was it held, why did Senator Feinstein hold it? That didn't go to the underlying question of what was being what Dr. Ford said, uh, and to say it should have come up two weeks earlier, three weeks earlier, a month earlier. Okay, you can you can stipulate that, but the real question is this was a very serious allegation. Uh, Dr. Ford obviously everyone in America, I think, believes she was a very credible, uh, thoughtful witness uh, and truthful. Uh, and uh, so these other issues sort of were used to throw sand in the gears rather than focus on the real question. The context of Dr. Ford's testimony, of course, was is the Me Too movement. And what we're not hearing, I think, enough of is from um, white privileged men uh, who have daughters and wives and sisters that they care deeply about speaking to men in 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 our communities about what to do what what are the men supposed to do about the me too movement well i think number one is to is to listen and not denigrate people that are coming forward uh, i had a pretty not pretty a very powerful experience uh, the day before the vote i had i think it was 16 female elected officials from Maine, all of whom are sexual assault survivors in my office. Elected officials, mayors, city council, legislators who are sexual assault survivors. I knew several of them, not all of them. And I think the thing that came through to me most clearly is, and I don't think men really fully understand this, is that women are always looking over their shoulder. They're always feeling like there's a target on their back, that there's some threat. And uh, I think if anything positive comes out of this, it will be a, 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 a rising understanding uh, of that reality and that it, we, have to, we, we have to understand and respect that. And I think, I think this is a, a, an important uh, turning point uh, for men to begin to, to comprehend this. Men don't feel that way. You walk down the street and you're walking down the street. You don't have to worry about uh, the possibility of, of, uh, of some kind of uh, harassment or worse. I think uh, the disconnect um, that is troublesome to me is, is, is moving the Me Too movement from an expression of, of what you just described to actual political power. Like 52 or 53 percent of white women supported Donald Trump in the election, knowing that there was credible allegations of sexual assault against him. And I think it's because they made an economic decision at the last minute that it's in their best economic interests to support Trump. So how do we take a Me Too movement or a movement uh, like a, a, a cultural movement and actually translate it into some political power? Well, of course, this year, an absolutely uh, overwhelmingly record number of women are running for public office across America, Congress, uh, state houses, legislatures. So I think that's already happening in the sense of, of turning it into uh, a, a political movement. Uh, 
Um, but I think the, 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 only, the, the other side of it, Cynthia, is we have to not make this more tribal warfare. Men against women, women against men. We have to remember, I mean, one of the great dangers in the world is tribalism, people that separate from others and therefore don't like the others and exclude them and discriminate against them. And um, the danger in this case is that um, it, it's, it, it's one more split in our society. And uh, I think that's uh, somehow uh, we, have to, uh, we have to work through this it, it sounds, I guess people would say uh, King is being naive, but there has to be as passionate and as strong and as important as this issue is, there still has to be some level of civility so that it doesn't appear to be just all hostility one way or the other and we end up going backwards. Well, and that's my concern is if men aren't in the conversation about the Me Too movement, then it's not going to be effective <laughs> because we're going to be leaving half, half of the people behind. Assuming that this Me Too movement and the, and the political um, ramifications of it translate into Democrats taking over the House of Representatives um, this year. How, in your mind, will that change the power dynamics in Washington? Will there be a sufficient check on the Trump administration to allow better things to happen, or do you just see more tribalism and, and perhaps an impeachment, for instance? Um, I, I think it's very hard to predict. the. I'm a, I'm a conservative when it comes to impeachment in the sense of, uh, I go back to William Pitt Fessenden and the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. William Pitt Fessenden was a, a senator from Maine who was one of the six Republicans who voted against the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Um, and basically on the premise that impeachment should not be used simply to change the government that you don't like. Andrew Johnson was a terrible president. Um, but Fessenden saw at the time that to have voted for his impeachment because the Republicans who controlled Congress didn't like Johnson's policies, didn't like him as a person, would be fundamentally changing our system of government. We'd become a parliamentary system where you had to have a vote of confidence. And, and I think that was exactly the right thing. The Constitution says impeachment is high crimes and misdemeanors. It's not we don't like the president or we don't like his or her policies. And um, uh, so, you know, unless, if the Mueller investigation comes up with some kind of really serious, egregious smoking gun that constitutes a crime, that's a different situation. Um, but I, I think uh, elections are the best way to change uh, politics in this country. Now, um, speaking of um, the House and uh, women in the House, we have Shelley Pingree in the 1st Congressional District, who is a candidate I know you know personally and you endorsed. Yeah, for 40 years. And now she has um, a challenger in Marty Groman, who is an independent. And um, with all due respect, sir, I think <laughs> it's safe to say that everyone who runs as an independent in Maine is trying to emulate your brand. They're, they're trying to be the next Angus King. And I guess what I'm wondering is, when I look at somebody like Marty Groman, who's running against Shelley, who's, in my view, totally qualified for the position, does he have any duty not to run and essentially take up a seat that, that, that a competent woman is, is well, there, filling right now? There are two, two answers to that. One is, I don't think anybody has a duty not to run. I think, uh, you know, if that were the case, incumbents would always run unopposed. Uh, 
I think uh, the uh, interesting thing in this particular case is it happens to be a, an election uh, with three candidates that will be affected by ranked choice voting. Yes. Um, so uh, you don't have the spoiler effect uh, necessarily. Uh, you, you, you know, when I first ran for governor in 1994, everybody said you're going to be a spoiler, and I said no, I'm going to win, which I did uh, barely. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think in this case, uh, Marty feels he has a message to deliver, uh, and in the end, I don't think. Uh, it's going to necessarily affect the outcome of the election. Are you going to endorse Shelley again? I have I, I have not endorsed Shelley in the past. I, I generally don't endorse. Oh, I found I found on the um, internet, and I apologize if I'm mistaken, a, a, a recording of a telephone call that you made to people get out and vote for Shelley Pingree. Um, but I, we I can check that. And I don't. If I, I'm mistaken, I, don't I recall. apologize. It's, it's, I don't. I don't recall because generally I have uh, stayed out of these elections with some notable exceptions, which, uh, uh, you know, but, but I don't think I ever endorse Shelley. What about the governor's race? Are, are you endorsing either no. the independent candidate, Terry Hayes, or Alan Karen? No. What about um, Janet Mills? No. I'm, I'm, uh, I think the people of Maine are quite capable of making that decision without my help. Well, you went to Washington in 2012, and I recall that one of your... Um, campaign themes and promises was to try to build a bridge. Right. Is, is Are you returning to Washington with those same goals in mind, or how are things different now that you're actually there in the office doing the work with your sleeves rolled up? I think what's different now is that I know more about how to do it. I think we've had some real successes. I, I feel really good about exactly that role. The summer of 2013, uh, there was a, the, the federal law on student loans uh, expired at the end of July and student loan rates were going to double. They were going to go to 6.8%. The Democrats had a bill to fix it that failed, didn't get enough votes. The Republicans had a bill to fix it that failed, didn't get enough votes. We were then left with the fallback being the law going into effect, 6.8%. I led a small group, Joe Manchin, Tom Coburn, Republican of Oklahoma, Lamar Alexander, Tom Carper, bipartisan group, we ultimately enlisted the President of the United States, and we, we negotiated a bipartisan compromise on that issue of student loans and got it through. It was amazing, and, and we had to build, we had no support from the leadership. We had to build out from the center in both caucuses. We ended up getting 82 votes in the Senate. It passed, the President signed it, and they tell me that it saved American students $50 billion over the last six years, including hundreds of millions in Maine. So that was a place where I literally was building a bridge. Most recently, flash forward to two weeks ago, I and Lamar Alexander, Republican of Tennessee, um, um, Mark Warner of Virginia, Rob Portman of Ohio, have a, the four of us have a bill to take care of the deficit in the maintenance of national parks, working with the Trump administration, of all things. That is something, a problem that's been going on for 20 years, and uh, this is a compromise bill, very, very heavily negotiated, but it, we just got it out of our committee last week. It got, it's gone through the House. It may actually happen, and again, I feel like that's a place where I'm making a contribution. Do you think, though, you couldn't have done those things if you had been a Democrat? I think there, the, the, uh, the being the, being independent does give me a little bit of a different status in the sense that I can work with the Republicans. Here's an example on that exactly. 
uh, in the Armed Services Committee, a big issue was the so-called Barry Amendment, which uh, applies, it says, everything the military buys in the way of clothing has to be made in America, except athletic shoes. And Maine politicians have been working on this for years and years and years uh, on athletic shoes because of New Balance in Maine. Maine made uh, American-made shoes. Uh, we had an amendment. It came down to a vote in the Armed Services Committee. John McCain, the chair, was dead against it, hated the idea, dead against it. And I worked with uh, four Republicans, Lindsey Graham, uh, Dan Sullivan, Mike Rounds, and Kelly Ayotte. Got th I, I stole those votes from McCain the night before. We won in the, in the committee the next day. I honestly believe if I'd have been a Democrat, we, I might not, I was, they were willing to go off, walk the plank with me against their chairman, uh, and then we got all but one of the Democratic caucus. We won, and I'm, in uh, two weeks I'm going to Norwalk to celebrate uh, New Balance making shoes for the U.S. Army. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, your Democratic opponent criticizes you for taking money from ExxonMobil. Um, and makes the case that money in politics is, is the root of all evil. Um, do you take money from Exxon for purpose uh, you know, as a I, campaign contribution? I was contribution? not aware of that, but I look back and lo and behold, yes, there were some contributions. Uh, nobody, number one, I, I'm not going to be bought. I've had 22,000 contributions, so no one contribution is going to make any difference. Uh, the other thing is nobody, with the possible exception of Sheldon Whitehouse from, from Rhode Island has been stronger on climate change issues, fossil fuels. I drive an electric car, for Lord's sake, and, and my license plate is Maine, no gas, it says. <laughs> uh, so I, I've, uh, you know, if, if ExxonMobil thought they were buying something, they weren't, they weren't making a very good investment. I'm going to do what I always do, which is make the best judgment I can, and uh, a contribution from one organization or another isn't going isn't to buy me, never has. Do you think that's true of most of your colleagues in the Senate? I, I think so. I mean, it, it, it would take more than one contribution. Maybe if you're, you know, 80% of your support comes from one industry or something like that, I think that could make a difference. But, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I've supported every campaign. Listen, <laughs> the worst thing, the worst part of this job is raising money. And I've supported every campaign finance. I'm the only senator to hold hearings on campaign finance. I was the chair. I was the chair of the, I was the temporary chair of the rules committee, hearings on campaign finance in the last six years. Two days of hearings, had John Paul Stevens from the Supreme Court, a lot of experts. I've, uh, I've voted for and supported the constitutional amendment to repeal Citizens United. Maybe my best argument is that the group N Citizens United has endorsed me <laughs> because I've been a real champion on this issue. Now. That doesn't mean I can say, well, I'm not going to take campaign contributions because the last time you, when you and I ran against each other, you may recall, six and a half million dollars came in against me in the last couple of months of that campaign from outside of Maine, and I wasn't going to be unprepared for that this time. Now, there's a group that is raising money. You're, I'm sure, familiar with it. Be a Hero campaign. They raised money to fund the opponent of Senator Collins in 2020 if she voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, which she has done. So now there's this pot of money available. It keeps getting bigger by the, by the minute. 
do you have an opinion about, about whether or not those kinds of um, political actions are effective or fair? Well, I mean, people raise money on for, for and against candidates all the time. Uh, I don't know if it, I don't think it was effective in influencing her vote. Uh, in fact, I think maybe some of the in, intense pressure on her may have backfired to some extent, where she was in a position where she didn't want to look like she had caved into pressure. Uh, but in any case, that's, you know, people's, that's the way our system works. You're mm -hmm. entitled to make contributions for or against a, a candidate. Did you think some of the special interest groups around the Kavanaugh confirmation went overboard and, and it might have backfired as well? I don't know. I, I, I can't really judge that. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of emphasis, and Judge Kavanaugh mentioned this, I think, about, you know, progressive groups coming in against me spending money. Well, there was a lot of money spent for him, too. I mean, we also saw those ads of nice people saying what a nice guy he is and all those kinds of things. Those, that, a lot of that was coming from very conservative groups uh, who want to see the Supreme Court move in a particular direction. So. Uh, it was. I think it's a, it's a shame to see a Supreme Court nomination become such a highly partisan political issue. Um, I, I I don't know if that genie can be put back in the bottle, but I think that's that sort of undermines confidence in the process. Well, speaking of undermining confidence in the process, uh, there's concern about uh, Russian cyber attacks in our election infrastructure. There's the ongoing Mueller investigation. Um, do you, do you think that, that when the Mueller investigation is concluded one way or the other, that, um, that there will be better cooperation by the Trump administration to sort of get at the heart of this cyber attacks? I mean, is the Mueller investigation, and my question is, is the Mueller investigation possibly causing the Trump administration to not dive into this threat of cybersecurity as much as they should? I, I thought a lot about that, and it does bother me because one of the only, one of the best ways to combat what Russia did in the 2016 election, and by the way, there is no doubt what they did, one of the best ways to combat it is if the public understands that they're doing it. And when the president and the administration keep saying it's a hoax and a witch hunt and nothing happened, it, it impairs our ability as a society to, 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 to confront it. We're, you know, half, not half, probably a third of the people think nothing happened. And by the way, it's really important to just, there, there, there are cyber attacks of different nature. There was the attack on the, on the election uh, infrastructure, on disinformation, hacking of emails, all of those things. There's also a huge danger of a different kind of cyber attack, which is a, on our critical infrastructure like the financial system, the electrical grid, uh, and that's, uh, as a member of the Intelligence Committee, I'll tell you, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. So when we talk about Russian cyber attack, it's not just the 2016 election. There's a, a, a really grave danger of, a, of an attack on our, on our basic functioning of our society that would be uh, equivalent to, to a, an attack with a missile. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that really worries me. We spend a lot of time on it. And one of the problems uh, is that we don't have any policy. And this goes back to the Obama administration. I was beating the drum about this five years ago. We don't have any deterrent policy for Russia or China or Iran or North Korea. 
they come they can come in and hack us and and disrupt and they don't pay any price and until they pay a price until they are worried that uh oh we better not do this or we'll get whacked in some way may not be cyber maybe something else they're going to keep doing it it's cheap and uh, so I think this is an area of national security that really is uh, uh, lacking and uh, a group of us bipartisan basis Mike Rounds and I he's a Republican senator from uh, South Dakota have really been pushing on this and a lot of other people are as, as well uh, to protect the grid. Jim Rich and I, very conservative senator from Idaho, have a bill we hope is going to come to the floor in the next couple of months to protect the electric grid. Uh, so um, this is an area where we're just, uh, we're really behind and I think we have to put a lot of attention. Last question. What should Americans hope for in the Mueller investigation? Uh, I think what they should hope for is some uh, definitive answers, uh, clear, one way or the other, uh, because it would be very helpful if we could move on uh, and either move on toward holding people account uh, to account for wrongful action or uh, moving on and saying uh, the Russians were deeply involved in our election, but it, uh, as far as Mr. Mueller is concerned, there was no uh, collusion with the Trump campaign. I don't know the answer to that. I'm on the Intelligence Committee, as I mentioned. We're working on that same question. I'm not going to give you any data one way or another because we haven't completed our work. Uh, but I think the best thing that com can come out of the Mueller investigation is a credible set of conclusions that can help the country, A, to understand that something really serious was done so that we can prevent it's happening again, and B, to understand whether there was some level of wrongdoing and those who were engaged in it are held to account. Senator Angus King, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Cynthia.